there, welcome to PH Expanded. I've been gone for a week or so. Uh, I uh, have a very busy spring schedule, um, busiest time of the year for me, so not always possible for me to do what I'd love to do, but glad to be back. Thank you for reading the blog and thank you for tuning in to this here, PH Expanded. I'm going to uh, do this a little differently because I just have a lot of questions uh, in my mind. I have four in particular that I want to talk about. So I'm going to do this differently to how I would normally. I would say, though, starting, there was a sliding doors moment. I, I like to start that way and, and talk about that. Um, I think, undoubtedly, um, well, two, what happened before the Crystal Palace game, I don't know what it is. I can't, I'm struggling to identify we, why we've gone from being such a confident, uh, one-touch, fluid, fun-to-watch attacking team to a team that looks tense and nervous, and it happened to almost the entire starting eleven before Palace and affected us against Brighton. Um could throw out all kinds of conspiracy theories. It could be just that a, a young coach is feeling the pressure himself and has relayed that in uh, a way that the players take as too big of a backpack to carry onto the field. There's just a thought. Um, and so first sliding doors moment in the game against Brighton, I think, started before Crystal Palace is whatever's going on mentally at the club and affecting our players has bled over from one week to the next. I was hoping that the thrashing at Palace would fire us up, as it often does when you get thrashed versus losing just 2-1, let's say, to come back the next week and make sure that doesn't happen. But didn't happen, so concern there. And then, of course, at half-time, just before half-time, if Martinelli's goal would have been allowed, that would have been the sliding doors moment. So I suppose it becomes it for Brighton, doesn't it? Because they go in at 1-0 rather than 1-1 and we're not energised, running off the field, getting a big round of applause from the fans. Uh, and with that goal, I don't know what the commentary was like where you live. Here in the United States, they were focusing on whether it was offside. And it it wasn't easy to tell because you couldn't really see Cucurella's Cucurella? Cucurella? Cucurella was the song, wasn't it? Anyway, um, you couldn't see his foot, really. You could see the keeper uh, was level or maybe slightly uh, in front of, uh, or playing Martinelli on side, but the second player that you needed, you couldn't see that. But anyway, my thought for those four long minutes was who headed the ball? Because it was, to me, inconclusive as to whether it was an Arsenal player. I think Gabriel or the Brighton defender, because if the Brighton defender headed the ball to Martinelli, it doesn't matter whether he's onside or offside, because he's onside. And the US commentators were entirely focused on whether he was offside based on the two players who were sort of level with him. And I think they were missing the point. And I think that the discussion um, in the booth was probably who headed the ball. Um, and my disappointment, again... We always are disappointed with VAR. But my disappointment was that if it took four minutes 
that to me suggests that it was inconclusive. Otherwise, why on earth would something take four minutes, 240 seconds to figure out if a goal has been scored? That is three and a half minutes, at the least, too long. So I think based on the inconclusiveness of that moment, that goal should have stood. At least my common sense tells me that. Okay, well, let's get over that. Didn't happen, didn't get the goal. The game wasn't great, but there are some questions that are out there. So the first one that I want to dive into is, uh, is this one. Is it the pressure that the players are feeling? Is that what is going on? And it's turned us overnight from a fluid team into a tense team uh, who are not using the momentum of the crowd. They had the opportunity yesterday, home game, and Brighton controlled the tempo of the game the first 10 to 15 minutes. Should never let that happen at home. There should be a freedom with which you can express yourself that first 10, 15 minutes because, as I often say, if you go behind, it's really not the end of the world. You've got way over an hour to get it back. So just go for it. You've got the fans behind you. But they were smart. They slowed everything down. And we were happy to play at that pedestrian pace. And I didn't get it. Still don't get it now. So we'd love to know if it's the pressure. There's another conspiracy theory as to what's really going on. Um, or a version of the same thing. Whoever knows what it is. But it's a hope that it's not the pressure of the moment because that one's hard to overcome because this isn't getting any easier. As the season winds down, the three points become more and more important, even more important than yesterday. So if our squad, because they're young or whatever the reason is, is struggling with the pressure, then we've got an issue and we've got an issue in the short, medium and long term because that will always be there. And at a club like Arsenal, you've got to be able to handle the pressure. So I don't know if I'm talking around a situation that's not there or, or whether it is, but that's something I think that um, I would focus on if I was Arteta this coming week before our next game is the mental side of the game and talk to the players one-on-one -on -one so they tell you the truth of what's going on in their heads. Ask them to be honest with you, is it something you're doing? Meaning Arteta. Is it something that they're feeling? Is there a, an influence in the dressing room that's negative? But something has clearly gone wrong because we should not have gone from um, the happy state that we were in to this, these two miserable performances. Um, just shouldn't have happened. Okay, moving on. That's enough of that. Uh, a lot of people on social media talking about uh, rotation. And it's a, it's a really good point whether Arteta should have rotated players like Sambi, Tavares uh, during our good run and got them in the team. And I'm mixed on this one because I feel that we wouldn't take those results back because we won a lot of games. And we were, uh, we were bigging up the uh, fact that we had a starting eleven that was being rolled out and other teams didn't have a settled team and didn't have a settled idea and Arsenal finally had a structure and a way of playing and we hate Gary Neville and all those things. So 
So I don't know if you can be smart after the fact and say that. However, there's a balance, right? There's You don't have to change the team, but maybe you change in certain games one player to reintroduce him, like you bring Sambi in for two or three or four games. <sighs> I'm arguing with myself here. But then that means leaving out a player like Jacques Party, who've been playing so well individually and collectively. So is that the right thing to do? Does it break the flow of a team in a groove? So I'm arguing myself here. And same with Tierney. Tierney hadn't started well this season. But he became certainly defensively more solid and decent going forward. Should you have rotated him and given Tavares more minutes? It's just a tough one to answer. So I'm going to sit a little on the fence, but I will say I'm not, I wasn't disappointed at the time. So if I was to come off the fence, I would side with the coach and said, you did the right thing because we won a load of those games in January, February, March with a solid, steady uh, lineup. And we weren't asking for what we're asking now back then, and we knew that that was an option. So maybe we're just trying to be upset, right? Okay, setting the play is a fairly new term in football. Setting the play is just simply, as the ball goes forward um, from defence to midfield or midfield to attack, rather than a player having his hips turned, as we were probably all taught as a youngster, so you can receive it on your furthest foot and go forward, you now receive it with your back to goal and send it back in the direction that it just came from. Okay, um, the logic there is the tactic, the simple tactic of up, back and through. It gives your players time to get into position and make runs off the ball. If every pass is vertical, you're only ever going to attack with a small number because the other players can't catch the play. Now, there's pros and cons. And this is not, I think, a big uh, evolution in football tactics that's going to be here forever. I think it's just a modern-day preference that most elite teams are playing this way. And it's a trend, and coaches tend to copy each other, especially when the ones at the top of the tree are having success with it. The issue I find, though, is teams like Arsenal that have these passing patterns and automatisms that we've developed and things that we uh, are doing without thinking, which can be good, but can also... Uh, stop us from just reading the game that's in front of us. I'm going to pick on Smith-Rowe. So Smith-Rowe, for me, when the ball is played into him, needs to be told when there's an opportunity for a numbers-up moment where we're five on four on a counter-attack or let's even say four on six in their favour, that's still good odds to turn that there's not... You don't have to set the play most every time the ball comes to you. There has to be a balance between these passing patterns and these coaching ideas and the game that's in front of you, the defender who's now not there. So why would you pass it backwards if you've got an opportunity to turn and an opportunity, a decent opportunity, to attack? Surely setting the play is for when you're under pressure and you can't turn. Uh, or it could be used, if you're not, I suppose, just to get players in advanced areas, as I said. However, 
as many times as you set the play past it backwards, you're allowing them to get organised also. So you get organised, but so do they. So you've got to think of the logic there too. And so I'm hoping that turning the communication is happening on the field at the right time or will in the future to where we don't end up so robotic that we do what the coach told us to do on practice field Wednesday when the game's now Saturday at 4.30 and I'm wide open and Martinelli's on the wing and it would be two on one, but I'm playing practice on Wednesday. I'm not playing when I'm not playing Saturday at four thirty. What's happening in front of me? And ultimately, no matter how much football becomes more and more of a coaching game, which it it has, football should always, always remain a game of creativity, because if it becomes too robotic, then not only does that not make sense because your team can be scouted and easily figured out by good coaches like the one we came up against yesterday, but the fans will be driven away from the sport. And that's probably too big of a statement to be worried about in regards to Arsenal right now. But ultimately, fans come to see their team A, win, and B, be entertained because they love the game. And they don't love the game because of passing patterns and automatisms and all these fancy new modern modern terms and setting the play. That's not what people talk about when they're walking back to the tube station. So that will never change, no matter how more sophisticated we get as fans. Okay, final point. I just had an epiphany, wanted to share it. I don't know if I have a fully rounded thought here but modern day, or Arsenal Lacazette, the one we inherited from Leon, I just uh, have come to the conclusion, I don't think he's necessarily even a striker in his profile. It's too late in his career probably to change, and maybe when he goes to the MLS or Saudi Arabia or wherever, he may drop to, to midfield, uh, that sometimes that happens. And I don't really know what he is. I think he's probably a second striker in a two-man forward line that Arsenal don't play. And I think Eddie Nketiah is too, by the way, but that's another point. I uh, look at uh, the profile needed for a modern-day striker, uh, or a striker in general, and from the dawn of football time to now... I think there's no argument in the fact that number one is goals uh, or contributing to goals directly. Goals or assists, and that would include the modern day. Previously, it was more just goals. But now it's goals and assists because you can say uh, a player like Firmino is not effective in Liverpool's team because it's a team sport. Uh, he is. He's very effective. The other players get the goals. He gets the assists, and he's extremely good at link play. Okay, um, well, <laughs> I think alongside goals and assists is, second on the list is desire. 
to score goals and assist. I will put that at number two on the list of characteristics of a striker. And I don't think Lacazette has that. I don't think he's had that his entire career at Arsenal. I mean, there's the odd moment, sure. You could go make a compilation, because he's been here a long time, of times where he shows desire to score goals. But when the ball is out wide, his movement in the box is almost non-existent. Easiest player in the Premier League to mark. Um, when the ball's outside the box, in the zone on top of the box, do you see dynamic movement? Do you see an aggressiveness in his body language? Give me the ball. Cross my body. One touch, two touch, bang, goal. I, I just I don't, don't see threat from him. Um, and that Alex lack of threat that the opposing fans throw at him is about as true as it comes because that his threat is waning and his profile is not that of a striker. It's just not. And you have to have, and maybe what I'm saying is his profile is not that of a striker needed at Arsenal Football Club because our wingers are right now 10 goal a season guys and credit to Saka, Martinelli and Smith Rowe that they're probably going to end up right about there. Because that was a lot to ask at the beginning of the season because they're still young and still learning and they're still young in the Premier League. So with that, let's say that's 30 goals. That's not many. You have to have a centre forward that offers more threat and has a greater desire to score goals. If Lacazette was playing for perhaps Man City or Liverpool, it, maybe it'd be fine. He'd be a second choice, of course, third choice. And maybe that's fine because there's goals coming from all over the place in those teams. And it's and it's no big story that those teams win four, five, six nil when they do. We just sort of turn the page and say, well, they've done it again. And that doesn't happen at our club. We have to have not just one in the sum. We have to have two players that offer goal scoring threat, whether that's two strikers and they rotate or they just pressure each other for starting minutes because they're both threats or a striker and a midfielder that offers a threat from deep because we have midfielders that shoot, but we don't believe the ball's going in the net when they shoot. Maybe Odegaard's about the only one, but not quite a believer yet, probably because he doesn't choose to shoot first. That's sort of fourth or fifth on his list. So that's just interesting thought. I <laughs> I do wonder if, if this was the start of Alex Lacazette's career and he was playing this way with this lack of desire to contribute in goals and assists um, that's needed at the elite level, I would look at him a little more seriously and say, you know, I, I, I don't know what you are exactly. Um, I just don't think you're a striker. I don't know. I really don't know what where I would place him on a, on a field. Um... Maybe he would do a good job as a, an attacking midfielder, perhaps in a mid-range team. Um, or, uh, I don't know, I'm going to sound stupid if I come up with something radical, but what I do know is I'm thinking that we need to change. And as I said in my piece, and I'll end with this, when your striker isn't really offering much of any consistent contribution and you need to really throw out the excuses that the others bring so the fact that Martinelli would be a scratch striker who has the tools but doesn't have the understanding 
I think it would still worry the other team and mean that we laid off, um, or they laid off, double-teaming Saka, for example, because they're so worried about Martinelli, whether he knows what he's doing or not. Same with Eddie. He just seems to have a, a knack of being in the right place at the right time. And even though his, his rounded game is probably not what we need, bar having him as a sub-option, it, it's still more than Lacazette's bringing. And Smith-Rowe is a false nine. If, if we want to try that, I'm cool with that because this isn't working. And again, it's not offering much of anything I can point to and say, no, let's just let's try again. At, at least... And I'm going to, again, finish with this. At least it would put questions in our opponent's mind before the game as to what Arsenal are going to do in this area of the field. Because I'm pretty darn sure that when Alexandra Lacazette's name comes up in the opponent's dressing room, it's not in a concerned uh, tone that the other coach is talking. He's pointing at him, saying words similar to... You don't need to really be too concerned about him. Focus on the guys on the wing. Hey, I hope you have a good week. Thanks for reading. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. And uh, it's not over yet. It really isn't. It's all good. Cheers.